a culture smitten by superheroes, whether it's Iron Man, Captain America, Thor, Oprah, <laughs> Tim Tebow. You know, we, we really want to look for that, that person, that figure that, that lifts us up, that carries us somewhere, that does something that's great because we always want to do something great ourselves. And so when I was in New York after the Christmas holidays, I went to see Spider-Man, the most expensive Broadway show ever put on. Uh, they had a lot of bugs, as they, no pun intended, uh, they had a lot of bugs that they had to work out uh, with the flying over the, the audience and everything. And when I saw Spider-Man, I got webbed. He flew right over me and bam, I got hit. It sort, of, it sort of stuck to my head. I'm not sure if the web was sticky or my, it might have been my head was sticky. I don't know. But uh, I, got, I got webbed. And, and we are just, we love superhero stuff. And it's, it's so pervasive in our culture that kids think about it all the time. And so my granddaughter was thinking about it. And she created a superhero identity for herself. Supergirl. Supergirl. I said, how did you get this supergirl concept? She says, she has super. Powers. I said, well, where did you, where did you come up with the, the name Supergirl? She's a superhero. And so I was a Supergirl yesterday afternoon. And because of this weekend, I said, hey, Supergirl, do you know what Palm Sunday is all about? And Supergirl said, no. Now, let's stop for a minute. A little time out here, a little parentheses in the message. Supergirl's father is an assistant pastor of a church. Supergirl's mother majored in religion at William & Mary. Supergirl has a grandfather who is the chairman of the board of elders at a local church nearby. Uh, could be this church here. Supergirl has a grandmother who was a children's ministry director for years and years and years. She has another grandmother who is a creative arts director for a church nearby. Might be this church here. And she has a grandfather who is me. And she doesn't know what is going on here. We need a timeout in our family. We need a family timeout. We need to find out how Supergirl doesn't know about something that was super that happened long ago. The interesting thing about superheroes is that they usually wear a mask and everybody wants to know who they really are. They're respected, maybe feared, but everybody wants to know them and get close to them, except except for their enemies. Their enemies don't want to know them or get close to them. They want to get rid of them. So let me tell you a story that goes back time upon time, age upon age. It's just before Passover in Jerusalem. It's about 33 AD. The city is buzzing. A reported superhero is about to enter the city but they don't really know who he is. It's almost like he's wearing a mask. He's had that problem for a long time now. It's reminiscent of that 19th century spiritual sweet little Jesus boy. Sweet little Jesus boy, they made you be born in a manger. Sweet little holy child didn't know who you were. Didn't know you come to save us, Lord. We didn't know who you were. But please, sir, forgive us, Lord. We didn't know it was you, sweet little Jesus boy, born a long time ago. Sweet little 
holy child, we didn't know who you were. The city is buzzing, and he's about to come in. Matthew 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with a colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell them that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And people had read this for a long time, but they didn't know who he was. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road. While others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road, the crowd shouted that went ahead of him, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The whole city was stirred. We like events where there's a stirring of emotion. We like the fact that a final game will be played tomorrow night and we'll find out who is the winner of the NCAA men's basketball tournament. We like that. And who is going to be the winner of the women's NCAA basketball tournament? We like to know. We like those, those stirrings and those moments that cause us to think great thoughts and feel deep emotion. And this is one of those times the whole city was stirred. Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And they knew a little bit about him, but they didn't know who he was. John puts it this way in the 12th chapter of his story. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had, he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. We, we seem to be out of control. The whole city is stirred. Everybody is stirred up. Look how the whole world has gone after him. But they didn't know who he was. Jesus said, Verse 27, now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Shall I just cash it in, pack it up, go home right now? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. He wanted us to know who he was. He didn't just want to be a a masked man, a cryptic figure in history. He wanted us to know who he was. And there was ample evidence that would secure his identity. It was already written. So today, let's look at some of the significant predictions in the Old Testament that should have told people not just that he was coming, but who he was really was. 
Micah 5. It's a passage that we look at often at Christmas. Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. They knew exactly where he was supposed to come from. And in the story of Christmas, it's very quickly ascertained that the one that they were looking for was going to show up in Bethlehem. In Isaiah 53, we have this amazing weaving of the details of the story in prophetic utterance by, by this prophet Isaiah. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him smitten by God, stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And, and is there any more clear description of what happened in the, the political maneuverings that took place right before what we call Good Friday when he's, Jesus is bounced around like a political football and, and people are trying to, to get him executed. And other political leadership is saying, I, I don't know if I can do this. I really don't see that he's done anything wrong at this point. But he is obviously being led like a lamb to the slaughter. And yet he did not open his mouth to complain about it. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And right there, Isaiah pulls out this detail of, of how if Jesus were to just die as a, as a common criminal, they would have maybe just left the body there. Or they would at the very least taken it and and thrown it out to a, a place where they just threw things away, right outside of the city of Jerusalem, a place where trash burned, a place that was called Gehenna, where maybe he'd get a, a very cheap burial somewhere in a, a plot of land that was just for foreigners and strangers and those who couldn't afford anything. But what happened? 
As we read the story, we find out that, that a rich man came, a man named Joseph of Arimathea. A rich man shows up, and he has a very expensive tomb. And you know what they look like, because you go to graveyards sometimes, you go to cemeteries, and you see these mausoleums, and they're, they're big, they're like mini houses. And then you see regular gravestones and sometimes small plaques. But the, the big houses where someone is interred, they stand out. And that's what that tomb was like. It was a, a wealthy man's tomb. It was a place for someone who everybody knew. And so here, hundreds of years before Jesus dies, Isaiah says, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. We have already sung songs about this today about his love and what he what he did for us and here Isaiah wrote about it hundreds of years before it ever happened after the suffering of his soul he will see the light of life in Psalm 41 we have an interesting allusion even my close friend whom I trusted he who shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me it connects to what Judas did at that last supper. In Matthew 26, 20 through 25, we, we come to understand that, yes, one of the disciples will indeed betray him. One of the disciples at that table, a disciple who is dipping his bread at the same table as Jesus is dipping his bread, will turn against him. Even my close friend whom I trusted, he who, has, he who shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me hundreds of years before the act itself took place it was described. One of the most interesting and often overlooked prophecies is Zechariah 11. I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they priced me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Now, if, if you were to just look at the 30 pieces of silver alone, you could say, well, maybe that's just a, a coincidence. 30 pieces, 30 pieces, that could easily be a coincidence. But when you add, I threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter, you have something much more deep and passionate that's taking place here. Matthew 27, early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priests picked up the coins and said, it is against the law to put this into the treasury. In other words, they couldn't return it since it is blood money. 
So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. In Isaiah 50, we have another passage that sometimes sits in the shadow of Isaiah 53. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Matthew 26. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Christ. Who hit you? In Psalm 69, we have more of this description of the the passion. Come near and rescue me. Redeem me because of my foes. You know how I am scorned, disgraced, and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Matthew 27 They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, because somehow the the formation of of the rock, if you looked at it in a certain way, maybe with the sun at a certain angle, it would look like a skull, the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there, Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And so you have all these these descriptions, all these words that, that paint a picture of something that is hundreds and hundreds of years out into the future. And, and they, they describe in detail just about every single moment of what happened. But if you have to ask me, if you, if you had to ask me, Michael, what's the, the one description that is most powerful for you? What's the one description that totally nails it down, that says this is the, the defining word picture of all the word pictures. They, they all build and build and build. But which one is the masterpiece? I would always tell you the same answer. And I always would begin to tell you with a question. Why did Jesus, when he was on the cross, say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as I've often asked that question, I've often gotten the answers that are typical. He was, he was, he felt lost. He he was defeated. He felt that God had abandoned him. Uh, It was that moment, you get this theological description sometimes, it was that moment when he took on the sin of the world and God could not look at him. God turned his back on him. And in that moment, Jesus just felt so abandoned and lost and alone. But the world is full of sin each and every day and God still looks at the world each and every single day. It could not be that. And then I usually get around to saying, what's the first verse of Psalm 22? And everybody knows Psalm 23, 
about the Lord as my shepherd. We sometimes learn that when we're, when we're small. When I was in the third grade in the Highland School, Midland Park, New Jersey, we would read that psalm before class began in, in public school. Reading the Bible in public school. That's how old I am. I remember that. What's the first verse, however, of Psalm 22? And people usually look at me with a quizzical expression. I say, well, let's, why don't you go ahead and look it up and then read it to me. And they look it up and they read this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I say, ah, what was Jesus doing when he said that on the cross? And sometimes they still can't, can't put it together. So finally I say, he was quoting Psalm 22, which raises the question then, why was he quoting Psalm 22? Why? Let's read it together. Because this, for me, is the moment that defines everything. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and am not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. And you, our fathers, put their trust. They trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. And you, they trusted and were not disappointed. In those verses, verses 3, 4, and 5, those verses define the heartbeat of Israel. They define the history of Israel. They define that moment when everybody wants to go back and remember that God sent Moses. God was faithful. He didn't abandon them. He led them out of Egypt and they were saved when the angel of death passed over their houses because the blood of the lamb was over their doors. They were saved and they thought about this often. They told this story all the time and it's the Passover story and Jesus went to the cross in the middle of the Passover story, the Lamb of God there, the Lamb of God here. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. And as, as you read the story in the Gospels, as we will read the story on Friday nights, you hear voices like this, mocking him, hurling insults at him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Was there anybody there to help him? from the time of his trial to the scourging that took place, to the crown of thorns, to the walk to Calvary? Was there anyone, as he got nailed to the cross, was there anyone to help him? There is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions tearing their prey, open their mouths wide against me. You know what happens when you're scourged? The flagrum was the the implement that they used, and it's what we would call it a whip, but it had, had many leather cords at the end of it. At the end of each leather cord, there was either a piece of bone that was sharp or there was a, a sharpened metal ball, and when it would hit the back of the person being 
being flagellated, it would tear out from the person's flesh, from the person's skin. Roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide against me, yelling at him, tearing at his flesh. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, like a, a, just a broken piece of pottery, piece of clay, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. If you were able to pull back and get an overhead view of the cross, you'd see people surrounding the cross at that moment. Three crosses, Jesus, the two thieves, surrounding that moment of execution. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. This written 900 years before the crucifixion at a time in history when there was no such means of execution as crucifixion. How did David know to write that? They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. When I read that, I am done. When I read that, it's like you got to sit down and take a breath. Because here, he wanted them to know so badly who he was that even when he was dying and in agony and pain, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that in their minds, they'll know to go and read this. Go and read this, and you'll see that what is happening before your eyes was painted a long time ago when David sat down to write, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, he wrote the description of the crucifixion. I am undone. I can't breathe. This this is something that should cause us great humility to realize that his love knew no bounds. And he was teaching with his last breaths. He, they didn't know who he was. But he wanted them to know who he was. Josh McDowell once put it this way. The odds of Jesus fulfilling only eight of the Messianic prophecies is equivalent to, to a number of, of one against 10 to the 17th power. And, and how, do you, how do you even conceive of what that, what that means? The odds of Jesus fulfilling only eight of the Messianic prophecies is like you know gazillions and gazillions to one. He said, this is the equivalent to covering the entire state of Texas with silver dollars two feet deep. Entire state of Texas, silver dollars two feet deep, you take one of those silver, silver dollars and you mark it in some way. You put a big red X on it, you spray it 
gold, whatever you want to do to mark that one. And then if this is even possible, you mix up then all the silver dollars covering the entire state of Texas. And you take a blindfolded person and you drop them anywhere in Texas and you say, you get one pick to pick the marked coin. He wanted us so badly to know who he was that in the moment of his death, he called them back to the story that had been written there for hundreds and hundreds of years. John Orberg wrote, at the end of the day, we do not have a program, plan, platform, or product to help the world. We have a savior. We do not point to success, knowledge, pleasure, or power. We point to a cross. Tim Tebow said it this way, I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds my future. Who is that masked man? Now you know. He wanted you to know. It was Jesus, God himself, coming into the world because he loved you so much. He wanted to bring you home someday. He told us he was coming, you know. Sweet little Jesus boy, born a long time ago. Sweet little holy child. We didn't know who you were. Dear Heavenly Father, in a moment like this, we are overwhelmed. We are, we are done and we are undone. You came into the world to be the Lamb of God, taking away the sins of the world. You came into the world out of love and out of grace. You came into the world knowing full well what would happen to you, but you did it because you wanted to bring us home. Father, in the moments of this holy week, as we move through Palm Sunday and Maundy Thursday and Good Friday and Easter Sunday, help us to have the humility to give our lives once again to you. Help us to have such a, a passion to serve you that we announce to you daily, we are your hands and your feet. Father, help us to not just hear the story, but help us to live the story each and every day. We give our lives into your hands again today. In Jesus' name, amen.